You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm Chad Dundas. That's Ben Folks. And we meet here every single week to chop up all the prominent, newsworthy, and hilarious happenings in the world of mixed martial arts. Ben, how you doing this week? I'm doing okay. How you doing over there? I'm doing good. Uh, we were just discussing before we came on the air that uh, we have dueling lawnmowers going on during this episode of the CME. My neighbor is mowing his lawn over here on my end. Your neighbor is mowing his lawn on your end. So uh, even though we are recording this podcast from opposite ends of town, it might have – maybe there will be a pleasing sort of zen quality to uh, a low-level hum in the background of this episode. Yeah, that's what I feel when I hear the constant yard work going on in my neighborhood is how zen it feels. You know, I, mentioned a, this, uh, I, I mentioned on Twitter, I don't know what it is, if it's just the pandemic stuff and people have been in their houses so long, but it feels like people doing shit to the trees – on my street, including removing whole ass trees that did not seem to be in poor health. That has seemed to really jump up of late as if like, I don't know if it's just like people have been at home so long and they're staring out their window at the same view for so long that they're finally like, man, fuck that tree. I've had it with that tree. I'm getting rid of that tree. And so then we're in for just like two, three days of constant chainsawing. Yeah. I mean, I, I've been out there doing more work on my yard than I normally do. In fact, over the weekend, I actually had the thought I was out there pulling weeds in the uh, one of our flower beds here around the house. And I was thinking, I was like, oh man, these motherfuckers fucked up by laying me off and giving me so much time to work on my yard because this shit is going to be banging. Yeah. I'm, yeah. And that's, that's bad news for everybody, I guess, is what you're saying. Yeah. Uh-huh. The, the only problem is that no one can come over here and see the wonderful job I've done. That is the only problem I can foresee with you out there in a pair of cutoff jean shorts pulling weeds. I'm going to have to put some pictures on social media. People, I'll be like, check out, check out the, uh, check out the French lavender I got going on over here on the side. Please do. Please post those pictures on social media. Tag Man, me you know, up just so I won't miss them. You know, if I did that, there would be a bunch of dudes out there who would well actually my yard work. <laughs> yes, of course. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah. Plus, you know, you know who would uh, probably put all my work to shame would be Colleen up there yeah. in Canada. Longtime CME listener and patron of the show, Colleen, would probably uh, post some pictures of her own garden that would uh, kind of blow mine out of the water. Colleen is probably listening to this while gardening right now. See, I don't need to call down that thunder. I don't no, want don't. that smoke. No, no, you don't. Well, before we move on with the show today, just wanted to say thank you to everybody who has either gone over to the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon and signed up or up to their patron level, their level of patronage in the last couple of weeks. It's been awesome. I think we're at all-time highs over there right now at the CME Patreon, of course, in the weeks after being let go from The Athletic. That's a, that's a nice thing for me to see. You guys are help keeping the heat and the lights on over here at my house, so I appreciate that. If you haven't yet signed up for the Co-Main Event Podcast Patreon, you can do it by going to patreon.com slash co-main event, and we got three separate tiers of patronage that you can sign up to help support the show keep us independent, keep the show ad-free, keep the discourse unfettered. We got cool content all week long coming out over at the Patreon. Ben, tell the kids what they can expect 
if they sign up at the CME Patreon? Well, naturally, you know, on Mondays, we start off with the proper because that's just how we do free to all. But then on Wednesdays, we got ourselves the live-ish chat. You see how it works. You get in on Tuesday, ask your question for the live chat on Wednesday. It's not quite so live anymore these days for pandemic-related reasons. But we get on there, and that's available to all tiers on the Patreon, Chad. That's from a dollar on up. A dollar a month to get involved in the live chat, that's nothing. It's like a quarter a week, my man. You get over there, we have ourselves a good time in the live chat, discuss all manner of nonsense in there. It's, it's fun. Uh, this week, we've also got the return of the movie club, the CME movie club for our top-tier patrons. What's the name of the movie we're doing again? We are doing Green Street Hooligans, I believe is what it's called. Green Street Hooligans. I believe it was the choice of CME patron Matthew Liming. Okay. I'm excited to check that one out. We'll be discussing that on Wednesday. And then on Friday, we come back with the CME Power Hour, known especially for its inclusion of the most powerful unit of broadcast media, basically since the beginning of time to now, the CME Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings. Rolls right off the top. I'm quaking just hearing about them right now. Yeah. Yeah. So if you want to get involved with that, just go over to the uh, patreon.com slash co-main event. Go ahead and sign up. Become a patron of the podcast. You'll be our best friend for life. Another thing you can do is go out and grab your copy of The Blaze. That's my latest novel. It's a mystery, a thriller. I've been hearing that a lot of the little co-maniacs out there in Listerland like it a lot. You can grab The Blaze today on whatever format you like to do your reading. Remember, if you have read it and you did like it, Please go give me a five-star review over at Amazon or Goodreads or wherever you like. Those reviews do help the book. So do me a favor. Buy, read, rate, and review The Blaze wherever fine books are sold. We got music again this week from longtime listener and friend of the show, Ras Jarborg. If you like what you hear from him on this episode, you can check out more over at soundcloud.com slash S-T-H-L-M RAS, Stockholm RAS. Three rounds as usual this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Valentina Shevchenko wasn't even in attendance Saturday for Cynthia Calvillo's unanimous decision victory over Jessica I. So how did it feel like the champion was the actual big winner of this fight? And in round number two, Dana White says every UFC event is special and unique like a beautiful snowflake. Is anybody buying that in 2020? And in round number three, speaking of which, Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov are set to do the damn thing at the Apex next Saturday. Plus, Roosevelt Roberts is going to fight Jim Miller? Nah, that must be a misprint. All that plus, are you fucking kidding me and just saying stuff? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. First piece of listener mail comes to us from now frequent emailer to the show, Eamon Dunphy, Irish radio personality who's really on a roll with getting uh, his his emails on the podcast. Can't get himself enough CME. I appreciate it. He writes, sure glad Marvin Vittori got an extra $50,000 for his fight. Hopefully that means he's taken home some money, as I presume he'll be heavily fined for multiple F-bombs during his post-fight interview, and a reference to being, quote, kind of fucking autistic when it comes to training. Decent performance, awful interview. At least he can go get a fucking beer now. Uh, so Ben, Ben, has anybody over the last month or so had a worse like public relations time than Marvin Vittori? He comes out here and gets the win over Carl Roberson, uh, first round submission in the uh, co-main event of UFC 
on ESPN I versus Calvillo over the weekend. So, and this one was a long time coming. The the, the uh, fight had been delayed once. Uh, we do it at a catch weight of 190.5 pounds, the granddaddy of them all. Uh, over the weekend, and Vittori does get the win. But I think as Eamon Dunphy points out here, man, he hasn't seemed all that likable over the last 30 days or so. Am I wrong? Yeah, I mean, there's the whole hotel lobby flip out thing. Actually, okay, I did not catch the part about being fucking autistic when it comes to training. I mean, I, I was watching the interview and I felt like I did not hear more than three words out of Marvin Vittori. Now, granted, I was watching this part via the, like where you do on ESPN Plus, where you can stream the the actual, what's on ESPN. And I didn't feel like I was getting it all. Like, you know, how you know how the stream quality when you're doing it that way through ESPN Plus, sometimes will go up and down. I caught the first part of the interview where it just seemed like he was swearing so much that they were constantly bleeping him. And I was like, well, okay. You look like I'm not going to, I'm going to have to figure this one out through body language to, to figure out what Marvin Vittori is saying. I felt like I could kind of get the gist, you know, more or less. I didn't get the part about when he said he was autistic when it comes to training. What, what was that? Uh, well, I believe, I believe he was kind of going for sort of like an obsessive compulsive. Okay. That's what it sounds like. Like he, I mean, did he, is it possible he just, he mixed up his terms there? Well, I mean, it is possible. Uh, Marvin Vittori, the Italian dream, he, we are dealing with him in a second language here, correct? Like he does speak English pretty well, but the man is from uh, Trento, Italy, and I believe still primarily makes his home over, that, over there when he's not fighting, even though, uh, you know, he, he trains out of the United States. Uh, so it's possible that he didn't quite know exactly what he was stepping in when he stepped in it here. Uh, but at the same time, the whole picture, I think that we've been painted of Marvin Vittori over the last 30 days or so, in my opinion, has been a, of a guy who's, uh, let's say, quick to anger. Yeah. And maybe okay. not all that uh, cool with, the, with, with uh, you know, personality-wise. Breaking news. Professional cage fighter. Little quick to anger. How about, though, the, the move in this fight, like where Marvin Vittori is trying to lock up that guillotine, and Carl Roberson is like, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put both my feet on the fence here and just launch myself forward like a missile. I mean, yeah. I'm not going to say that that's exactly textbook, that that's something that they're going to be teaching in all the jiu-jitsu gyms, and it ultimately did not end up you know, getting him all the way out of trouble there. But when it happened, I do appreciate someone willing to think kind of outside the box there and just be like, all right, let's try this shit now. Am I, am I out? <laughs> Is it better now? <laughs> yeah, Carl Robeson had some some moments when we were on our feet here, but the thing really swung in the favor of Marvin Vittori once it hit the hit the canvas. He was kind of lucky uh, that he didn't get stopped just on strikes here from the ground and pound, because even though he was blocking some of these shots, Marvin Vittori was really laying it on him on the mat. And I don't know, uh, Big Dan Mergliata was thinking, hoping he didn't get a parking ticket or something like trying to, he was trying to remember if he'd validated his parking. I don't know what he was doing, but uh, he let the thing go on until Vittori finally locks up the choke. I mean, can we at least finally close the book on this whole saga of uh, Marvin Vittori versus Carl Roberson? My God. It feels like it. this was a, a long walk for a short slide. Was it not? You might say it's indicative of a lot of stuff that's going on with the UFC right now in the pandemic era 
uh, of putting these fights together kind of by hook or by crook that uh, we've been asked to buy into this feud between Carl Roberson and Marvin Vittori over the last few weeks uh, when really it's a couple of guys that that we probably wouldn't have paid much mind to otherwise. And here they are in the co-main event as kind of an attraction. Marvin Vittori gets his third win in a row in the UFC. Uh, They were questioning whether or not he would crack into the top 10 at middleweight despite the fact that this – this was up there at that at the vaunted 190.5 pound uh, d- division. We're also trying to make a five. The one We're also trying to make a big deal out of Vittori uh, taking Israel Adesanya to a split decision and a loss back in April of 2018. So I mean, it says it says something about you. I mean, we all know Israel Adesanya has turned out to be pretty good. He's the current 185 pound champion. But we're out when we're out here making a case for you based on your loss. I don't yeah. know, man. Yeah. That's, it could be better. Let's just say that. There could be better things to say. I do think it's interesting. I don't know if you remember this, but somebody in one of the fighter surveys we did for The Athletic, some other fighter mentioned something about um, about how basically when you are signed on to a promotion, whether it's the UFC or whoever, but I think especially the UFC, they really have so much control over your image and what goes out. And I it, and I think he made some kind of reference to what happened with Conor McGregor with the bus attack. But we saw a similar thing here where Marvin Vittori flipped out in the hotel lobby after Carl Robeson had to pull out a last fight. And I think it was Walt Harris who took video of it, posted it to social media. And then you know, you knew when you saw it that if they made the rematch or if they, they finally rebooked that match again, that that was going to end up being promotional material. And it absolutely was. It ends up being on the broadcast here to sell this. And it is an interesting thing kind of how like, a episode that you may have thought you were having with somebody off camera, kind of off stage, somebody else captures it on a cell phone, but you post it to their private social media and it becomes fodder for the UFC's promotional hype machine. And it's going to shape the way people see you and everything. And it's like, and it's all kind of just out of your control as a pro fighter. Yeah. Uh, I mean, not totally out of your control. you could have just not flipped out in the hotel lobby, but you see what I mean? It's uh, you're, you're creating content. I mean, I guess it helps you, right? I, in theory, in theory, we have a little bit better of an idea now who Marvin Vittori is, at least as a fighter. So you could make the case that it has advanced his career. But like, uh, yeah, you're, when you're doing that, you're kind of uh, kind of making content for the company to to help uh, promote sort of you by extension. <laughs> sort of you. Yep. All right. Next question this week comes to us from CPO GCA. Okay. Which I don't even know what that is. Hopefully it's not something dirty that they tricked me into saying on the podcast. Uh, He or she writes in, Ben has never uh, mentioned how jujitsu gave him a pile of trash neck that I've caught. Uh, Was it cumulative or one incident? Is it a big enough pain that he would discourage newbies from training or uh, how would we avoid that path? Uh, Cumulative is the short answer there to that just over years and years and years. And it was a thing where, like, there was one incident where I was like, oh, something just happened there. And that was really bad. And it hurt for a while after that. But then it was a, kind of a repeated pattern over the years where I would go, I'd train for a while and everything. Something would happen. I'd, I'd be in bad pain for a couple of days. And that just kind of waited out, stretch it out, that kind of stuff until I felt like I was good to go back. And other than the very annoying pain of it when you're actually dealing with it. I didn't think it was going to be a big deal. I'd always go to the doctor and they'd be like, you ever having like numbness or tingling down your arm or anything? And I was like, nope. And then one day I did. And I was like, oh, that's what they're talking about. And it was extremely bad. And so, yeah, 
then it's just gone downhill ever since then. I think a combination of just wear and tear. And then as you get older, it's not like your body gets better at healing. Uh, not a big enough pain though, that I would discourage newbies from training because it's for one thing, as I've come to learn about it, it's not the kind of thing that's going to happen to everybody. I mean, it happens to some people and I know I've talked to a lot of pro fighters who have dealt with it even worse than I have it. A lot of it is just kind of like genetic about the way your, your vertebra works and how the, the nerve openings in your vertebra, like how narrow or how wide they might be, how easily, uh, or how uh, susceptible they are to this kind of damage. So, uh, but it's still, I mean, I don't regret doing jujitsu, even though it sucks for my neck now. And, and that's even after I was just uh, last week in MRI machines and getting x-rays and stuff talking about whether we're going to put some artificial discs in my neck. Even through that, I, I still don't regret it. I, I enjoyed all those years I did jujitsu. Kind of wish I could still do it, but yeah, when you get to the point where we have to, uh, like, I'm at that kind of old man level where I'm like, well, no, I can't sit like this for more than five minutes because I'll be paying for it for the next week and a half. Like, and that's just kind of the calculation you have to go through. Like, that's not great. Those aren't great times. But still, you want to get on the mats and do it, I, I recommend. I remember that you had kind of gone back and forth on surgery. It seemed like you had kind of finally made up your mind to actually get the surgery and then the pandemic happened. Yeah. And so uh, things got pushed back. But it sounds like if you're out here uh, – sitting in MRI machines that, that we're back on. We're back yeah. on with the uh, with the surgery plans. Well, for now, we'll see. I, I got my appointment, everything rescheduled, went in there and talked to them, everything. We're going to look at the MRIs and the x-rays. I'm going in tomorrow for a nerve-like conduction test, uh, which is, from what they told me, it sounds like they're going to be sticking some needles in my arm and then running electricity through them. So I'm not looking forward to that at all. But yeah. uh, pending the results of all those tests, then we'll see whether uh, – I might be a candidate for surgery. So that's where I'm at. So, uh, you know, my boys have an extensive Lego collection over here. If you need material to build those artificial discs out of, and you could save yourself a few bucks by bringing your own, you hey. could, you're, you're, you're free to use anything we got over here. If there's one thing that I always say about uh, spine, invasive spinal surgery, it's that you should cut corners wherever possible that's to right. save yes. on, on costs. Yeah, you put a, put a little away for later. Uh, next question this week comes to us from Josh Montgomery, who writes, you guys help me out here. I thought the whole fight island thing was to skirt travel ban laws in the U.S. Now, don't these laws work both ways? The island is part of the UAE, so how do U.S. fighters or any fighters from a country with a travel ban get to go there? Is it not still international travel? I can't imagine just uh, walking into O'Hare with no passport and saying, take me to Flat Island. I thought there was going to be some badass boats leaving the Florida Keys and other ports across the world full of fighters uh, sipping Cristal and hitting waves reminiscent of Biggie's hypnotized video en route to some secret location. What gives? Uh, this is kind of an interesting question because – uh, this was the idea of Fight Island, right? That we would have a a place where all of the UFC's diverse international uh, roster of fighters would be able to meet up uh, and 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 have it out in the cage. And at least in America, I believe most professional athletes are exempt from international travel laws or travel laws uh, in general. But I'm not sure how it works in other countries, and so. I, I don't know, man. It's possible Josh Montgomery raises a valid point here. Although I also have to think, considering all the the uh, the hemming and hawing that we did around Fight Island and how long it put this took to put this thing together, that the UFC wouldn't do it unless they had a valid plan for entry and exit for all the people who needed to get there. 
Yeah, I something I'd heard recently had suggested that there might be a lot of charter flights involved, like leaving from a few hub cities. Like get you know, you get to this city, you get on this charter flight, we'll take you to Abu Dhabi, that kind of thing. I don't and I don't know exactly how all the the travel restrictions work for different countries, depending on where you're leaving from and where you're going to and all that kind of stuff. Uh, but it does seem like the UFC is already pl- just thinking that maybe the travel restriction stuff won't last forever. And I don't even know what the current status of travel restriction stuff. I mean, you got Dan Hooker scheduled to fight Dustin Poirier at the Apex at the end of June, right? So, uh, I mean, he's coming in from New Zealand, right? The, it seems like, and and I did see stuff before, and I don't know if it had applied originally to the UFC, but about uh, foreign athletes being given exemptions, it's especially an important thing for the NHL trying to get started up again because you're not going to have much of an NHL if you don't have foreign hockey players. So I, I don't know. You also look at the UFC's ongoing event schedule. It looks like they're planning to spend all of July at Yaz Island. Uh, and then August, at least one show I think is already tentatively planned for back in Las Vegas. No word I think yet on what, where UFC 252 is supposed to be, but it seems like maybe the UFC is thinking like, okay, getting around travel restrictions is going to be a temporary thing. And then it's going to be back to business as usual. Yeah. I mean, at this point, it kind of feels like we are we're rolling through with quote unquote fight island just because Dana White said it was going to be a thing that they did, right? Like he made kind of such a big stink out of it that uh, even though we are moving forward with maybe the idea that a lot of these travel bans will have been lifted, that like he promised fight island and now he has to deliver it despite the fact that it's you know not really what he described it to us as being. All aboard uh, next Fight question. Island. Next question this week comes to us from Stephanie Murphy, who writes, uh, "Isn't it a isn't a whole lot going? There isn't a whole lot going on, so I'd love to finally get this question sorted in my mind. When people talk about whoever is the goat of a certain weight class, do they mean overall accomplishments, or do they mean who they think would win person versus person as a given at a given time? For instance, Alistair Overeem is clearly not the heavyweight goat, but the 2011 Uberim who fought Brock Lesnar might be the greatest single heavyweight fighter of all time. Also, Aldo was the featherweight goat for years. Then he lost to Holloway, and Holloway beat." better competition so he was the goat but then he lost to alex is alex the featherweight goat or is 2006 aldo the featherweight goat or does holloway's blend of performance and longevity give him the nod discourse specifically featherweight but also just generally please uh man you haven't had to say the word goat that often since we did that movie club on the witch yeah no all right uh i believe we have also uh stumbled into a discussion here about how the, the any discussion of mma's greatest of all time is kind of silly because it, is. it seems like it changes constantly and the sport has only been around for, you know, a couple decades in the United States. So we're dealing with a pretty short history here. But if you work in the MMA media industry, one of the things you know is that people will always read a story about the GOAT, my man. Whenever uh, whenever you need to gin up a little readership, write a story about who is the GOAT. And people are going to show up to, to comment on that shit. Yeah. Well – and I don't know if we're trying to narrow down our criteria for one thing and answer to Stephanie's question as to what people mean. I think people mean different things depending on who they are and how they're having the conversation and what point they want to arrive at in the conversation. Right. I've heard people kind of that's twist one that of the things that makes this a, uh, that's one of the things that makes a goat discussion kind of ridiculous, right? Because you can come at it from a bunch of different ways. Like if you want to make the case that Conor McGregor is the greatest of all time because he's been so 
uh, much overwhelmingly more popular at the box office than almost any other MMA fighter in history and, and like uh, knocked out Jose Aldo in 13 seconds and went and fought Floyd Mayweather in a boxing match. I don't know, man. You can kind of do that. It doesn't really stand up if you start making the case based strictly around accomplishments and performance. But like if the goat to you is the guy who like brought in the most money, then maybe you can make an argument for Conor McGregor. I don't know. Yeah, and if we start making the case like we we have to evaluate you based on how you were against the competition of your era, then you start to get weighted heavily towards people who just did not have competition that was anywhere near their level at the time. Like this Hicks and Gracie kind of the goat because he's out there smashing people when people everybody else is still trying to figure out how an arm bar works, that kind of a thing. I don't know. I mean, that is one of the reasons that it's silly. And I would like to point back to was somebody was asking a, a unrelated question about these fighter surveys we did with the athletic. And I think they were asking, this is it. They asked what my favorite quote to come out of it was. And this is from somebody else's. I did not do this interview and wish I could tell you who, who said this, but you know, anonymity and all that. So we can't, but when asked about pound for pound greats, one fighter replied, if you think about it, we're all watered down compared to our ancestors. Them motherfuckers were savages. You ever get like a little blister or something on your toe and that shit hurts like a bitch. Then you realize that those guys used to march in like iron shackles for days on end, not even cry about it. You know what I mean? It's like those are the real tough sons of bitches. Like our toughest guy on the planet is still watered down compared to the toughest person back in the day. This is my new go-to response for all goat conversations moving forward, Chad. Yeah, that was that was the kicker on the story that I wrote. I remember coming across that that quote from the uh, fighter survey quotes and being like, well, this is absolutely 100% going in my story, even though it makes no damn sense at all. Yeah, we're all wimps compared to like Hannibal. So uh, therefore, we just shut down the conversation right away. Yeah. Also, uh, featherweight greatest of all time is Jose Aldo. <laughs> see, see how it happens. Just can't resist. Next question this week uh, comes to us from Tom Hughes, who writes short but sweet one. Any thoughts on the hashtag Joe Silva stories hashtag being shared by some of the UFC's ex-independent contractors because they're definitely not employees? Am I right? Uh, so this, I believe, did Bloody Elbow write a story on this this week? But apparently there are uh, there are fighters out there. So you know. Uh, some of these former fighters, guys like Gray Maynard, guys like Sam Stout, uh, guys like Mike Pierce have kind of taken up the mantle here and are starting to talk a little bit more freely about what they were paid and what they feel like they deserved to get paid throughout their UFC careers, which I think is always a great thing to say or see. And uh, as a result of that, or as an offshoot of that, we have these hashtag Joe Silva stories, the former UFC matchmaker, a guy who is kind of notorious around the, uh, the industry for being a very shrewd negotiator. Some might say like a strong arm negotiator. And, you know, despite the fact that he was doing the bidding of someone else like Dana White or the Fortita brothers was kind of the guy who uh, the job fell to him to get these fighters to fall in line and fight for the, the amounts of money and the contracts that the UFC really wanted to push on these guys. And now, of course, uh, he's out of the game, pretty much cashed out the moment that the UFC sold to WME IMG. He got a cut of the proceeds and was like, well, now I'm tremendously wealthy. I don't have to do this job anymore. I believe he lives in Virginia uh, and was was during the at least the the later stages of his tenure with the UFC was kind of allowed to work remotely from there, which was kind of unheard of at the time. You were supposed to like be in-house at the Zufa offices in Las Vegas, but Joe Silva kind of did it for the most part remotely from what I understand. Uh, and now, of course, he's out of the game and now you have people 
coming forward to to like talk about what it was like to try to negotiate with him. Uh, ben, I feel like you knew Joe Silva or knew of Joe Silva a little bit more, uh, you know, personally than I did. Maybe had a, a, a at least like an email relationship with the guy. What do you think now of all these fighters coming out and kind of saying uh, this guy was not our favorite person in the world when it was time to to discuss new contracts? Yeah, no, I mean, I can absolutely see how they would feel that way. And, and honestly, you know, I got to know Joe Silva a little bit, especially when we did a story on them for a magazine that USA Today was putting out about MMA. And we ranked like the most powerful figures in MMA. And Joe Silva and Sean Shelby as the UFC matchmakers at the time were pretty high on that list. And normally they didn't do any media, but uh, USA Today kind of convinced them to, to convince the UFC to let them be quoted in stories and actually do a story about what their job is like. And it was still, I think, one of the most interesting for me stories that I've I've gotten to do as a journalist, just stepping into their world and seeing the way they look at the whole UFC roster and the way the whole machine works from their perspective. But also I remember when Joe Silva was kind of piecing out the game after that sale and trying to do a story where I was trying to go around to people and talk about like, hey, tell me about your feelings about Joe Silva now that he's leaving, what kind of legacy do you feel Joe Silva leaves? And there were a whole lot of people being like, you know, I'll give you a boilerplate quote about it if you if you need something for your story. But my real feelings on this motherfucker would have to be off the record. And there was a lot of that. And I understood, I guess, like how because uh, a lot of that. One of the things you get with Joe Silva, like there's not so, there was no such thing as like a short phone call with Joe Silva. Even if it was about like a minor, like I might text him or something to kind of like fact check something I was working on. Even if he wouldn't, he couldn't be quoted or whatever. He he would call me back and he'd, he'd want to talk about it. And he he loved to argue. I mean, I'm talking about him. He's dead. He's still a live person. He loves to argue, as far as I know, still. And not even in like a mean, aggressive way, but just a, you know, if you bring up a point he doesn't agree with, he is going to want to just debate that point endlessly until you give up. And that was one of the reasons that he said that he could not get on social media or could not allow himself to even open the door to, to Twitter or to being on MMA message boards or something because he knew about himself that he would just be on there arguing with people all day and he wouldn't it would waste all his time and he just knew that he could not allow himself to start getting down that road and so i, I guess it kind of makes sense when you'd hear from managers and and fighters who had to deal with them and he kind of resigned himself to being like okay these people are all going to think i'm an asshole but that's just part of my job like sitting down and explaining to them here's how this works and here's I'm going to give you what I regard as a logical explanation as to why you do not deserve this money that you're asking for. And people aren't going to like to hear that. But then you also see these messages and emails and, and texts and stuff that have come out in the antitrust lawsuit where you can see Joe Silva and UFC executives all kind of laying out their strategy for this is how we do people in order to get them to do what we want and to, to get get the fights we want as cheaply as possible and get people signed to the contracts we want. And if you don't do it, there are consequences. And if you piss off the UFC and you make it harder for them to put together this stuff, they're going to make you feel it later on down the road. And Joe Silva was absolutely a part of that. And that, that has to be in there too. All right. That's going to do it for listener mail this week. If you've got questions, comments, concerns that you want to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comainevent.com. And click the link in the top right hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. If you have to be a, if you happen to be a member of the Patreon, you can always hit us up via Patreon message and uh, we put those on the show as well. Uh, 
while you're there at the website, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter that comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all the days that we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. The newsletter itself is short. It's informative. We'd love to tell you it's funny. And of course, as you know, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, we are going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Cynthia Calvillo went out there and pretty much handled Jessica I in the main event of Saturday's UFC card over there on ESPN. Calvillo wins the unanimous decision 49-46 times 2 and 48-47 times 1. Before we talk about the actual fight and what it might mean in the women's uh, flyweight division, let's talk for a second here about Jessica I missing weight the week of this fight. She weighed in at 126.25 uh, pounds, which obviously is uh, 0.25 over the limit that she was contracted to be at. Not a huge weight miss, but at the same time, uh, weight miss all the same. It was the uh, second fight in a row where she had missed weight. Her fight against Vivian Arajo at UFC 245 was 131 pound catch weight. Uh, what do you make of Jessica I having trouble making the 125 pound limit and what that means uh, for, for her future in the division, despite the fact, you know, that, that she was a title challenger against Valentina Shevchenko uh, as early as, as one year ago. Yeah. Well, at first we were talking about it on the power hour and how it seemed like a real heartbreaker to miss by 0.25 and take all the heat and take the fine, everything for missing weight when you're really just barely over. And then we hear from Cynthia Calvillo that she got a text from Jessica Eye's coach beforehand saying she's going to miss by a few pounds and that maybe you're doing Daniel Cormier's towel trick from inside the little hoop curtain. and that, that yeah, magic. We're doing magic. Uh, you get out the the blanket, the, the hoop that uh, obscures the audience's view of you. It's like you're doing a uh, – some kind of like, uh, you know, escaping from a straitjacket or something. Like <laughs> yeah. you're doing uh, like uh, Harry Houdini style stuff in there. I think this is why you're supposed to be forced to do that way in with your hands up above the the little curtain so that, you know, hands in full public view so we can be sure that everything's on the up and up. But uh, I don't know if that is the case, if she managed to manipulate it and get so close to actually making weight by doing the little pinch on the, uh, the curtain then that's got to be somehow even more heartbreaking, right? Because it's like, yeah, you just you didn't quite push hard enough. enough. Yeah. You just, you gotta, you gotta yank on that thing a little bit harder, I guess. I don't know. It's oh, so close, but yeah, I mean, it's not like it's the first time she's missed weight either. Missed weight, talk shit about other people missing weight, missing weight here. Uh, and honestly, I was really, I, I, as this fight progressed, especially after the weigh-in miss and everything, you're going to take some heat for that. You know how that goes, especially if you've been through it before already. And then she goes in there for this fight. And as the fight was nearing the later rounds and you're hearing her corner, you know, you heard Eric Mixick from Extreme Couture in her corner being pretty frank with her about what was going on and what she needed to do. But then some of her responses and kind of her attitude in this made me wonder, does Jessica, I think she's winning this. And then you saw her stand there afterwards waiting for the decision to be read. 
And I don't know how much of it is just, you know, you go ahead, you might as well go ahead and act like you think you won. And maybe if it's close, you'll, you'll fully just, I mean, why go out there and hang your head before they even say that you lost? Uh, but then it even seemed like staying there expecting the decision to be read. Like she was a little bit surprised to learn that she did not win this. And I was thinking, how, how did you think that you had won this fight? Yeah, there was that exchange in the corner where Eric Nixick, he said something like, I believe you can do this. And she said, I am doing it. Yeah, yeah. And it was like round four or something at that point. Yeah, where I was kind of like, oh, that's that, uh, that's an interesting exchange right there. Like, uh, that's that doesn't sound like something your corner man would say to you if he thought you were winning. Uh, but, you know, she her her response seemed to indicate that that uh, that she thought she was. So there was that. Uh, it's interesting to me also to see the corners now having – uh, responded to the empty arenas that that they know that it's so quiet in there that everything they say can be heard. That now we see a lot of uh, a lot of cornermen in there just kind of murmuring instructions yeah. to their fighters. Cynthia Cavillo's corner they they turned into some real close talkers, uh, getting right up in her ear, not taking a chance on just guy hearing anything. And also, you heard it earlier in the night where uh, the Andre Feely fight against Charles Jordan and Paul Felder, and thinking that Andre Feely might have like broken his forearm or something catching one of those kicks. But then was like, I don't want to say it too loudly because I don't want to give anything away here if that, if that is in fact the case. It is interesting to see how people are having to adjust that. But honestly, you know, watching this fight, I, on some level, I was impressed with Cynthia Calvillo just in terms of implementing a strategy. Her timing on the takedown attempts was really good for the most part. Why she was so successful, especially down the stretch with the takedowns. There were some parts where it seemed like she was working really hard to keep this guy down. And when I got up, you were wondering, okay, the is she gonna? Did she spend all her energy there in that scramble? But you know, she just as far as savvy uh, fight IQ, I thought Cynthia Calvillo looked like she's showing some real signs of improvement. And yet, I also come out of this fight where we're watching ostensibly the number one contender in Jessica I lose to an up and coming contender in Cynthia Calvillo, and I'm thinking anybody who would put Calvillo in the cage with Valentina Shevchenko right now must hate her. Because it seems like you, you just have Valentina Shevchenko 50 feet of shit and then everyone else. Like she just seems so far ahead of everybody else in that division right now. And, and fights like this kind of only hammer the point home. Yeah, we've talked before about how the UFC's uh, fight introductions oftentimes display some selective memory that they will only uh, – you know, repeat information about fighters that they feel like helps build up the the fight that's about to happen. That was kind of funny leading into this event at the very beginning of the fight card. Like they do the video package about Jessica I and the voiceover says like, since she found her home at flyweight, she's been dominating all the other contenders, which is sort of like, well, I mean, she did miss weight twice in a row. So I don't necessarily know that she's found her home and saying that she has dominated the other contenders is an interesting way of not saying she got KTFO the time she got in there with the champion. So uh, that's an interesting way to to like approach the introduction to this fight. But I agree with you with Cynthia Calvillo, another person who like had had weight struggles for sure in the past when she was down there trying to fight at uh, at straw weight. She missed weight three times. Uh, she's only she's nine one and one overall. Um, I believe she is uh, six one and one in the UFC. 
and had lost to Carlos Esparza back in 2017 and then had the uh, majority draw with Marina Rodriguez just before this Jessica I fight. But you're right. She moves up to 125, hopefully alleviating the the weight problems that she had had uh, at, at 115. And she does look super capable in this fight. You know, the stand-up exchanges were probably the closest part, but anytime Cynthia Calvillo was able to, to – get the fight on the ground or, or kind of close the distance with Jessica. I, she was really able to, to dominate this thing, uh, especially with her, with her grappling and submission attempts. So she gets the kind of lopsided unanimous decision here, but I agree with you that, you know, just considering what you see out there from her in the cage and also her relative inexperience of only having 11 pro MMA fights, seems like she would absolutely get run over by Valentina Shevchenko. Uh, and yet, you know, you go out there and beat the person who was at least ostensibly the number one ranked challenger in this in this division. Ben is the the flyweight, the the shallow nature of the flyweight division. Does that work against Cynthia Calvillo here? Because you know we we know that the UFC is going to want to get any of its champions back in the cage as soon as it can. It seems like Valentina Shevchenko is one of the the champions that remains on good terms with the UFC at the moment. And so they're probably going to want to get her out there as soon as they can. Do you think uh, Cynthia Calvillo gets, gets fast forwarded into a title shot here before she is, is ready for it? It's a definite possibility. I mean, it's not like we haven't seen that kind of thing happen before. I, I mean, there are also some other options there uh, as far as picking out a next contender. And, you know, you want to have Valentina Shevchenko healthy and fully ready to go before you're even really talking about booking a, a title fight. But it is interesting. I had somebody ask me in my mailbag column this week kind of about is Valentina Shevchenko destined to be essentially a a female Demetrius Johnson, like dominate the whole division, and yet it's not – it doesn't exactly catch fire with the public. Now, I would say if your problem is that – you know, if you're the UFC and you're looking at it and you're like, okay, well, we've got this uh, – blonde woman fighter who keeps finishing everybody and just beating the shit out of them and putting people away, they they might not see that as such a huge problem. They might see that as like, okay, that is something that we can work with. Even if she doesn't have the fiercest competition right now, maybe we can take whatever contenders, you know, potential contenders there are and build them up until they seem somewhat credible and then put on these fights. Plus, it's probably not like you feel like you're really breaking, breaking the bank to get Valentina Shevchenko in there for multiple title defenses a year. So I, that's probably more how the UFC is looking at it. But it is kind of the thing that we've gone back and forth with in a lot of weight classes, especially with the women's champions, is you'll see somebody show up, be super dominant, and then immediately our complaint is, well, there's nobody good enough to actually compete with them. So is it even fun to watch? I mean, Valentina Shevchenko, I feel like she is so good just technically that she is still a lot of fun to watch. And I don't know, if we have to watch her kick some Jessica eyes upside the head every once in a while, I don't know if I'm going to complain about that, Chad. Yeah, I mean, all this is good news for the UFC and Valentina Shevchenko. It's probably bad news if you're Cynthia Calvillo, though, is it not? Like, you know, even if she's not the next title challenger, it seems like it would take her a while, if if ever, she would be ready to go in there and be competitive with Valentina Shevchenko. Like I said before, just 11 professional fights, uh, it seems to me like – one way or another, if she wins another fight or two, that she'll probably wind up out there with the champion sooner rather than later. Uh, and and I think that that is probably a good matchup for Shevchenko and a bad one for Calvillo. You're saying maybe um, now's a good time for Cynthia Calvillo to go back to school, finish up, I mean, maybe get that master's degree. Yeah, why not? Ceramics, I mean, you know. Yeah, yeah. Who knows? Who knows what the future might might hold? 
Let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben, and then we will move on to round number two. Ben, what's your Are You Fucking Kidding Me this week? Chad, this morning I open up the old email account. I see an, a press release from One Championship. The, the subject line is One Championships adds U.S. $70 million to its war chest, which, okay, war chest, kind of an interesting term for a uh, fight promotion to be using. But then a little closer, here is the first paragraph of this press release. The largest global sports media property in Asian history. Pause for effect. One championship. Today announced that it has added U.S. $70 million to its war chest, bringing total capital to U.S. $346 million. One championship has also streamlined operations, including a 20% reduction of total worldwide headcount. That's the way of saying that they fired a whole bunch of people. Headcount, huh? Head count. Those, <laughs> those heads don't count anymore. Uh, uh, Are you wow. fucking kidding me with this? This is how you tell everybody that you're laying people off. You're like, good news. We just got a bunch more money dumped into the old war chest. Also, we fired a bunch of people. Head counts are down low. We really streamlined. Everything is looking great. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? Uh, who Who are they at war with? I mean, besides their own people. Everybody. Okay, All the that's heads what the war that chest. can be counted. Okay. Yeah. Head count. That's an interesting way of putting it. Yeah. That's that's interesting. Streamline uh, the old head count. Stream, streamline the head count. Why is Dana White the only person who doesn't have to wear a mask at cage side? <laughs> I think you're you fucking kidding me. Yeah. But are, are you fucking kidding me? We just we just had this conversation like two weeks ago that everyone had to wear their masks. And if Dana White wasn't going to wear his mask, he was going to have to be up at the uh, in the office somewhere watching on the watching on a monitor. Now this Which week, is what you did, on, right? Yeah, but I, like I turn on the ones. TV this week and there he is in his salmon colored T-shirt sitting there, uh, sitting there cage side. No mask. You fucking kidding me? Really? Why did he feel like he just absolutely had to be cage side for this one? I, I wonder. Like if it was like, okay, the mask thing means you got to be sitting up there. You did it once. You sat up there. You watched it on the monitors. It was okay. Why this event where you're like, you know, know what? Nope. I got to be down there. I got to be down there, but I also got to be not wearing the mask. Yeah. I I have no answers. I have no answers. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me. That's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Chad, to start round two, I'm going to hit you with a quote from the aforementioned UFC president, Dana White. This card sucks. No cards suck. If you're a fight fan, you watch all the fights. Now that, of course, is a familiar refrain from Dana White responding to criticism of fight card quality. Now, this fight card on Saturday night gave him the opportunity to trot out one of his favorite talking points, which is that you never know how the fights are going to be until you watch them. People who criticize the fights on paper are missing the point that real fight fans will watch anything that's out there and that it's always the fight cards people say aren't going to be any good that end up being a ton of fun to watch. Now, of course, Dana White was very eager to take credit for stuff like that when it happens. When the fights end up being boring or under-delivering or something, then it's the fighter's fault. But when it all comes together pretty well, then Dana White, very eager to to go out there and get the pat on the back for it and everything. And yet, 
this whole idea about like, hey, look, any fights that we put together are fights worth watching if you're a fight fan. Seemingly because we put them together. Like I think Dana White would and has argued in the past that other fight promoters have put together shitty cards, bullshit cards that aren't worth your time and attention and money. Definitely has made that point before. But when the UFC has their letters on the cage, any fights that they put in there are good fights by virtue of them being in the UFC. Now, it's a little bit interesting, I think, that when you think about it, especially now, as we talked about this fight card beforehand as we're starting to see the strains of pandemic UFC. You got uh, several people who just fought a few weeks ago back in there. You got this fight card, the Jessica I, Cynthia Calvillo fight, which, you know, not a bad fight necessarily, but also would not main event a whole lot of UFC cards that we've seen in the past. Uh, and yet you come out of it and people going, well, look, that wasn't absolutely garbage. There were some good fights, some good finishes. Uh, does it prove that anything the UFC trots out there is automatically worth your time? I mean, at the very least, at least this sounds like something that a, that the promoter should say, right? Like, if you are the guy in charge of selling us these fight cards, you should probably sit up there and make the case to you that to us that we should watch them. Like, it, this is this is better than when the UFC unpromotes somebody. Yeah, right. Like, yeah. this is at least a better uh, promotional tact for them to take. But man, I've been saying. For years now, I feel like on this show, going all the way back to the Fox deal, when it when we we got knee deep into the Fox deal, and it turned out that what we were doing was oversaturating the market with content in exchange for making a shitload of money on the number of events we were going to do. Back in those days, I started saying, "Look, will we watch anything the UFC does? Like, if you are a hardcore fight fan, are you going to send the message?" What else can I pay for? Thank you very much. This is amazing. As long as there are two warm bodies inside this octagonal shaped cage, I will watch it and I will gladly thank you for it. Uh, because at this point, you know, we are so far down the path into the world of oversaturation that I think we all know we're never going back to the, to the place where we used to be. And uh, like, if you, I, I just like, I don't know, man, I, I don't buy it. I think as a hardcore fight fan, you want to see good fights. I don't necessarily just want to see two people that I don't know that I've never heard of uh, fighting in the cage, like hoping to see a knockout or submission. I, I would rather have people that I feel emotionally invested in people that I, I know where the, what the stakes are in the fights and people who are talented and are going to put on, put on good fights. So like, I, I tried to make the case years ago that we shouldn't watch anything just based on the fact that the UFC logo was up there on the screen. But it also seems very much like this is where we're at today and this is this is what the product is. And, uh, you know, as I've also said for a long time now, that to me demonstrates a significant shift in the landscape of the sport. Well, one of the things that I was thinking about afterwards when people were talking in the aftermath of this card, like, hey, there were some fun fights on this card. Like, doesn't that go to show that just it's always worth it no matter what? I was kind of thinking about it in terms of baseball. Like, you ever been to a fun minor league baseball game where, you know. They're all fun. (laughs) Well, they're all fun in a certain kind of way. Maybe not if you're covering them for the local newspaper, as I believe you've learned. uh, In a minor league baseball game with no pitching can stretch into six hours or more. But... You go to a minor league baseball game, the tickets don't cost that much. You know, the, the, the beers are not quite as expensive as the, the big league ballparks. You're sitting out there. It's a nice summer day. 
the teams are going back and forth. You know, you know that these aren't the very best baseball players in the world, but they're still pretty fucking good. And it can be a fun back and forth game if the teams are too competitively matched in some way. Where you know you might end up with like somebody. I've been to minor league baseball games, seen somebody hit a walk off home run in the tenth inning, and you're like, okay, wow, that was exciting. That was an exciting, fun time. And yet, I'm not going to confuse it for being just the same as you know Yankees versus the Mariners or something like that. Like it seems like there's a similar thing that goes on with that with some of the the UFC cards because, like you said. The big ones that we end up being asked to pay premium prices for, it's often because you care about these people. You know who they are. You, you follow their careers, trajectory. You, you, you care about what happens to them in these fights. It feels meaningful to you on that level, not just because you think that they are adept at a certain kind of violence. It's because you care about the outcome here one way or another, and that's what, what gives it the meaning. You can also get some other people together and put them in a cage, and depending on how skilled they are and how they match up uh how the styles mesh together you can get some fun fights i mean lots of fight promotions can put on fun fights ksw's had fun fights bellator's had fun fights cage warriors has fun fights you can get all kinds of fun fights all over the place but the thing that we seem to usually acknowledge separates them is what we think of as the reasons why we care about the fighters and not just like these two people are capable of going out there and one guy knocks out the other guy yeah, it's a completely different style of entertainment, right? Or it's uh, the the point of the entertainment is completely different. Like the reason that you walk into a minor league baseball stadium is completely different than the reason that you walk into Yankee Stadium to watch the World Series or to watch, you know, the American League Championship or something like that. It's just I mean, a different. The reason thing. you walk in the minor league baseball stadium is because you know they can hear it when you yell, "You suck!" You, yeah, you, you get off on that. Sure. Yeah. But it's just like, there's a different, it's a different aim, man, a different pursuit entirely. So for the UFC to, to try to make the case that, that that's okay, that all we need are a couple of people out there fighting and no matter who they are, it's all going to be fine. It's sort of like they are, they're changing the entire uh, purpose of, of the entertainment and why everyone is there. And I would, I would also note that at the same time, maybe it's even at this same press conference, Dana White stands up there and essentially tells us, the way that we determine the worth of a fighter is if you can sell pay-per-views, right? Because he got asked another question. I think it's at the same press conference where it was a it was a fighter pay question, and he essentially said, "Look, man, there is a revenue split, and the guys who sell pay-per-views make a lot of money. So we are we're playing out with both hands here. On one hand, we're saying all these fights are great, and if you are a fight fan, you will watch them all. And on the other hand, you're saying the only people who are worth any money are the the fighters who can sell pay-per-views. So what does that say about Jess Guy and Cynthia Calvillo? Like, what is their worth? What's their worth to the UFC? What's their worth to the audience? Because you can't simultaneously tell us all this stuff is great. Every event is a special snowflake and you need to watch every single one of them. But also the only people who are worth anything are the very, very top people that actually sell pay-per-view events. Yeah, well, I mean, he means worth worth his money, worth the UFC's money. Not worth anything with the UFC written on it from... Beach towels to pay-per-views worth our money, Chad. Okay. So our money is different from their money. Yep. Yep. I see. I get it now. I got it. Yeah. A very, very strange way to go about it. Not a lot of, uh, not a lot of philosophical continuity, you might say, in the messaging there. Which I know is shocking to you. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, that's going to do it for round number two. 
we're going to go ahead and move on to round number three. That starts right now. Speaking of every UFC event being a special snowflake coming up this Saturday night, again from the Apex Arena down there in Las Vegas, you got UFC on ESPN 11, a.k.a. UFC on ESPN Blades versus Volkov, a heavyweight main event pitting pitting Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov uh, in a world where Francis Ngannou did not exist. Curtis Blades would almost certainly be the hottest young up-and-coming 265-pound fighter in mixed martial arts. He's on a three-fight win streak at the moment. Uh, Alexander Volkov just beat Greg Hardy in November on a short-notice fight for Greg Hardy over there in Russia. Previous to that, though, he'd lost to Derek Lewis and then had a a fairly long winning streak uh, to his credit before that one. Uh, Ben, headed into this fight, however, Curtis Blades is uh, a significant favorite. I believe he is... uh, Minus 365, according to Odds Shark, headed into headed into this fight. We know already that Daniel Cormier and Steve Miocic will fight a third time for the heavyweight title. The presumptive next contender is obviously Francis Ngannou. He's been waiting for a while. Curtis Blades, however, has said that if he beats Volkov in this fight, he's going to sit out, sit out and wait for his chance to fight for the title. What is this heavyweight fight worth to you? What are we? It's maybe a little bit of a continuation of our round two discussion here, but like, what are we watching this fight between Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov, hoping to see and or learn? Yeah, I mean, it's in some ways an interesting fight to me, Curtis Blades and Alexander Volkov. I won't say that I'm buying into anybody who's trying to tell me that this is going to potentially determine next heavyweight contenders. This is one of those fights that might determine who won't be a heavyweight contender anytime soon, just because. You'll lose this one, then you're not even in the conversation. But yeah, I was a little surprised, honestly, to see Curtis Blades this heavy of a favorite. And you do the math on it, you can understand how he'd be the favorite to win. But uh, like I saw him as high as four to one on this. Alexander Volkov going off at, at plus three twenty five. Chad, if you had twenty bucks, you never wanted to see again, huh? Awful hard for me to bet against uh, Miami private investigator Curtis Blades at this point. Although yeah. Yeah. Alexander Volkov is kind of guy where I mean, I don't even know. Uh, if we know what to expect from him really, or know how good he is at the moment, because uh, he did have that loss to Derek Lewis in October, 2018. But aside from that, you know, he's been uh, M1 heavyweight champion. He's been Bellator uh, heavyweight champion. Uh, he's, like he's a good fighter and he seems like he's coming into his own now into his early thirties had run off a string of wins in the UFC he beat Fabricio Verdum. He beat Stefan Struve. He beat Roy Nelson. So like this is a capable heavyweight. Uh, but Curtis blades just seems like, you know, he's got all the tools as a young guy. Certainly I'm going to have the, the wrestling advantage in this fight. If you had to bet, I think you would say Curtis blades win wins, but it is a somewhat interesting physical matchup just because we don't honestly know what to expect from Alexander Volkov at this point. Yeah, we talked a little bit on Friday about Curtis Blade saying that uh, if he wins this, he's going to sit her out and wait for his heavyweight title shot, which I, it's going to take 
some weird stuff happening to several other heavyweights in order for that to turn out to be a good idea, I think. I'm going to go ahead and make a prediction. Even if Curtis Blades wins this fight, he will be required to win at least one more fight before getting a heavyweight title shot. That's my bold prediction for this episode, Chad. Boom. That's, that is very bold. Did very bold. Mind, I, you, know, silence was, you, just, you were silenced. At heavyweight, you like there's all you know crazy things can happen. Somebody can get hit by a, by an SUV. You got a, a thing of space junk could fall out of the sky. You know, you if you're Curtis Blades, you could do a lot worse than to beat Alexander Volkov and just kind of be the guy who's who's healthy, hanging around waiting to see what'll happen. One thing I was thinking about, especially in looking at the odds, do you think it makes a big difference, especially with the heavyweights and considering? both guys style that this one's going to go down in the 25 foot octagon inside the UFC apex. Yeah. There's been a lot of talk about the small octagon. You're going to have a hard time uh, floating like a butterfly and sticking and moving, staying away from Curtis blades and staying away from his wrestling game uh, and his punching power. If you're in the smaller octagon, that's a couple of big guys. Yeah. You get the big fellas in there. It's not, it's not going to be a lot of, a lot of room to move around. Now this one, otherwise, you mentioned Jim Miller versus Roosevelt Roberts at a catch weight of 160 pounds, the 160. Now, yeah, this one completely flew under my radar. I had no idea this was even happening. Uh, yeah, it's a weird matchup, right? Roosevelt Roberts, one of these guys who comes in off the Contender Series a couple years ago. He's had a lot of success in the UFC. Of course, he lost to uh, Vince Pichel. From, from Hell Michelle, yeah, yeah, back in uh, June of, of last year. But he's got two wins in a row now. Uh, just fought in May, beat Brock Weaver by rear naked choke. So he's making a little bit of a of a quick turnaround here. Uh, he's also the favorite in this fight, which I thought was interesting to look at the line. But, you know, everybody knows Jim Miller. He's going to come in here with uh, damn near 50 fights to his credit. And this is just a uh, – this is an interesting matchup, especially one that is is – Right now, slated to kick off the the main broadcast. It's the curtain jerker for the main card. Uh, this are we trying to get Roosevelt Roberts over here doing the thing where we bring the uh, the old lion out to get the new the new lion over in front of the people? What's happening here? Or is this you know in this era of pandemic UFC? Is this just man? Here's two guys that are available and can make it to the to the show. Yeah, I mean, it could very well be that. Like, I, I would not be surprised if the UFC thinks there's more of a future in the Roosevelt Roberts business right now than there is the Jim Miller business, which a long-running business, the Jim Miller business, made his UFC debut, I believe, back in 2008. Somehow, Jim Miller is only 36 years old, which, again, this is, this is like one of those Joe Riggs kind of things. doesn't seem possible that Jim Miller is only 36 years old just because it feels like I've been watching Jim Miller fight in MMA almost my entire natural life. And yet somehow just still in his mid thirties. And, you know, he would say that his record probably looks worse than it is over the last few years, just because he was dealing with Lyme disease kind of stuff. And then it took him a while to even recognize what it was and to get it all sorted out. Had a good, uh, really spirited scrap with Scott Holtzman and his last time out. Uh, but it does kind of seem like, all right, we we've seen everything we can get out of Jim Miller. We know he's good for a fun fight. That's why we're going to start off the main card with him, but maybe we're thinking Roosevelt Roberts is a little bit more of the future here. Yeah, it does. It does seem like that's, that's probably the way we're going. Uh, is there anything else on this, uh, on this card that is interesting to you? I mean, I can, I'll tell you one thing, Lyman good coming back after having coronavirus, right? 
Going to fight uh, Bilal. Remember the name Muhammad at welterweight? Okay. That's not a bad fight there, to be perfectly honest with you. Clay Guida against Bobby Green? Oh, man, Clay Guida. If you told me Clay Guida had retired two years ago, I'd believe you. You know that? Yeah, uh, I was going to say Clay Guida and Jim Miller are on this card and somehow not fighting each other. Uh, but it turns out Clay Guida just fought Jim Miller in his last fight. So uh, maybe you couldn't, couldn't do that one again. See, and again, if you told me that that was the third time those guys had fought, I'd be like, yeah, no, that seems the right. Vaunted, it's the vaunted series, Clay Guida versus Jim Miller. Best of seven. We're going to do best of seven between these two guys. Why not? Yeah. Uh, Josh Emmett, you know, anytime he's out there, he's going to do something. He's going to throw them hands. Josh Emmett's a fun guy to watch. Interesting to see where he can go there. But again, like what this else? just brings us back to the idea, like this is where we are, right? This is where we're at with uh, with UFC programming right now. Just looking at the card, being like, "What's what's good here? What's <laughs> is, uh, what can I order?" See, this is. Have you reached that stage of your of your middle agedness where you go into the restaurant and ask the waitress what's good? Because that yeah. is a stage, man. And once you get, once you get there, I don't think there's any coming back from that. Yeah, I mean, when I was working in the food service industry, and and uh, someone would would say that to me, I was always tempted to be like, "Whoa, here, nothing, <laughs> man." You. <laughs> You walked into the wrong place, my friend. Go go across the aisle there. That's where the uh, that's where the Dairy Queen is. Get yourself a hot dog. Well, in fairness, you were working at the the Euro Shop in the mall, though, right? Don't sell me short. I was a night manager of that bitch. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. Should we do uh, just saying stuff? Let's do just saying stuff. We'll get out of here. Get out of here for this week before we uh, go any further down the uh, down the rabbit hole. Uh, Ben, this, we were talking about this a few minutes ago, but this same, uh, press conference where Dana White is talking about, uh, the, uh, the, the worth of fighters where they, how they make the, uh, they make their money from pay-per-view sales, how he's talking about every, uh, UFC event is, is wonderful and unique and we should all watch them if we're fight fans. Uh, it's a carryover of a conversation that we had from the power hour on Friday, but it just seems like. Dana White is stuck in these talking points that were developed for him about the UFC's pay structure like five or 10 years ago. And he hasn't really figured out a different way to talk about this stuff. And it struck me again at this press conference when he was asked, I think again, about Jorge Masvidal and John Jones. And he basically went on a, a short uh, rant about how none of this stuff is new, that we've been dealing with this for a while. All this stuff happens constantly. A couple of fighters are mad about their pay and stuff the UFC has to figure out. So I guess this week I'm just saying, man, something about these discussions is new. Something about these discussions is new because for the first time over the last few years, the actual UFC internal payout numbers have become public. The actual UFC financial information that it had taken such great pains to treat like a state secret before is now public. So what's new about these conversations is that you have high-profile fighters like Jorge Masvidal and John Jones publicly asking for more money in an environment where we know how much money the company makes and how much it keeps. So these discussions are not the same as the ones that we have had year after year. These are totally new discussions where if you care to know it, all of the financial information is available. I'm just saying. Just saying. Chad, have you seen the clip of Bill Burr on the Joe Rogan podcast? 
I know that it's out there and I know sort of what it is, but I haven't watched it. I, I recommend looking it up because there's a moment. They're both sitting there. They're smoking cigars like you do on your podcast. And uh, Joe Rogan is asking Bill Burr, like, what do you think people should be walking down the street with a mask on? And at first, Bill Burr tries to tell him, you know what, let's not go down this road. Let's not get into this. And Joe Rogan wants to get into it. And Bill Burr replies, I'm not going to sit here with no medical degree, listening to you with no medical degree, the American flag behind you, smoking a cigar, uh, basically acting like we know more than the CDC. Which, I guess this week, I'm just saying, isn't it weird how long it takes us sometimes these days to get around to such a reasonable viewpoint? Like, a to defer to expertise in venues such as that just saying maybe it shouldn't be that uncommon for us to be like i don't know maybe the people who study this stuff have researched it and have their whole professional lives revolving around knowing what we're supposed to do and what's going on in a situation like this maybe it's worth listening to them i don't know i'm just saying just saying well, that's going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back on Wednesday for the live chat over at the Patreon page. We will also have a movie club episode about Green Street Hooligans that comes out that same day. And then we will be back Friday for the co-main event podcast Power Hour featuring the ever-popular co-main event podcast Patreon Power Hour Power Rankings. Check us out for that. We'll be back one week from today for the proper where we will probably talk about what happens at the Curtis Blades Alexander Volkov UFC card. And then uh, look ahead to June 27th, still down there at the Apex, where Dustin Poirier is scheduled to take on Dan Hooker, and Mike Perry is scheduled to take on Mickey Gall. So a couple of fights there that actually piqued my interest, Ben, folks. Because you're such a Mickey Gall guy? Got to support my guy, Mickey Gall. Big underdog, I noticed, against Mike Perry in this fight. Well, that just means you'll cash in even bigger. That's right. 20 bucks I never want to see again. Check us out for all that. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. I say here's Down what there you do. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Uh, sell the minivan. Okay. Take all, take like all the cash from it. Put it down on Mickey Gall. And then, you know, you do it and you, you tell, tell your wife something like, oh, it had to go in for maintenance or something. And then she's like, okay, it's been three days. Where's the minivan? And Come rolling up in an Escalade that you bought with the proceeds of your Mickey Gall bet. Guess who's the hero now? Chad Dunnesis. Yeah, my wife would still look at that Escalade and say we couldn't get all of our car seats inside that thing. Well, okay, fair point. Fair Although point. we did just move, uh, we did just move one of our kids, another one of our kids, into a booster. So at this point, we're, we're rolling two boosters on one car seat. Where there's light at the end of the tunnel. There you go. Now they can get That's a job. Right. Help out around here.